Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's teaching text comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasens. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wretched, wretched the chains apart and wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us, the, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told, told it in the city, and in the country, and people came to see what it was and had ha- what it was had happened. They had to come. They had came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, and the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and the pigs. And they begged, began to beg Jesus to depart from their region, as he. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is Russell. I'm the pastor for our community, and um, welcome. I'm glad that you're here today. I'm excited to get into this, like, crazy passage with all this nuance, and um, maybe, maybe, maybe you'd find yourself just even a little bit in the story today, and that would be uh, a win. And so, um, before we do that, though, um, our community groups are going to wrap up this week, and so we'll take uh, a little bit of a break, but we wanted to provide a little bit of, of an in-between. That's why these uh, events are happening in May, and so um, it's good to see new faces around here, and so if you're new, um, join us. Uh, join one of these two things. It'd be really great to uh, meet you, get to know you. And then uh, for the summer, what we're going to do is we're going to keep, um, on Sunday mornings, we're going to keep pushing through this Gospel of Mark, and I'll uh, explain why we're spending time uh, doing that. And then we'll take a little bit of break this coming fall, 
um, to talk about emotional health. Uh, what is the congruence of our emotional and spiritual health? We were going to do that this summer, but um, I know that, uh, you know, in and out in the summer, and I was like, let's do this when everyone is here in the fall, and so um, we're going to be doing that on Sunday mornings and then with our community groups, and so I hope that you um, would do that. And so you can check our calendar. It's currently updated on our website, reunionnyc.com backslash connect, and all of that is there. It's going to be an amazing season. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this passage. And so, Father, I love you, and um, even as I stand in the back um, and we sing this song, like, why do I worry? You know what I need, and I pray that that would, um, that that posture would resonate deep in our hearts that as we come to your word this morning, that we would come knowing and believing again that you know exactly what we need, that we come into this room um, with a lot of conversations in our mind and a lot of experiences and work and all of these things, and we bring them to you, and then we get to say, why do I worry? You know exactly what I need. And so I just pray right now that as we come um, to your word, uh, that you, by your spirit, would speak to our souls, that there would be a renewed sense of meaning and purpose, um, a renewed joy, and a renewed connection with you as we come into your presence. And so, um, God, I pray for myself right now as I come to a, a complicated passage like this. Help me. I need you this morning to communicate um, with clarity and wisdom and with reality. And so, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so, I want to actually begin where we left off last week. And so, uh, if you, were, you weren't here last week, you missed out. It was Easter. Um, but also... Um, I think as we think about the season of Easter, not just as a day, but as something that actually continues on in the church calendar, we come with a sense of who the person of Jesus is and what he came to do, which is what we've been doing here on Sunday morning. And so last week, what we talked about is in the person of Jesus, and specifically at the resurrection, we have the torn dichotomy of heaven and earth. And so these are the, the spheres that we looked at last week. Um, is that uh, heaven is its own thing and earth is its own thing. And so last week we talked about um, heaven is God's dwelling, it's soul, it's spiritual, it's sacred, it's the place we go when we die, it's full of God's presence and goodness and beauty, all of the things that we long for. And then what seems to be separate from that is earth, right? It's bodily, it's tangible, it's maybe seen as secular, or it's to be enjoyed for a little while, but it's ultimately not our long-term place because it's a place filled with sin and injustice. And so last week what we said is that in the person of Jesus that's thrown into upheaval, Jesus comes in the Gospels and he's walking around healing people, teaching people wisdom, forgiving people of their sins, creating new community, reminding people that there's hope. And basically what he's doing is he's crossing from heaven and creating little pockets of heaven on earth. And so, that would be, in a snippet, the entire book of Mark, Jesus poking through. Uh, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible is in Mark chapter 1. Jesus steps onto the scene, and he says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I don't know about you. It doesn't sound that exciting to me, but... The time, the time, the Greek word uh, here for time is not chronos, minutes and second time, but the word is kairos, meaning a moment in time. And Jesus is, is stepping onto the scene and he's saying, a moment in time is here and I'm actually in your midst. And so the elements of the kingdom are in your midst. And here's what I want you to then do. How do you respond to it? You repent 
and believe. And that word repent, it gets a really bad rap culturally, right? Like if anybody tells you that on the street, you're like, I'm out, man. I got to get out of here away from this person. Repentance simply means to turn and go a new direction. It means you, your life was, was heading for disaster and you needed to do something different. It means your life was about to hit rock bottom and it means to turn 180 degrees and go a new way. And then it says to believe. And the word believe here is like rest your life on, lean on me. Like I, I, I can actually carry you if you would be willing to lean on me in this way. And so the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm doing a new thing. Repent and believe. And so what is Jesus doing? He's blurring the lines of heaven and earth, right? Heaven is in motion. Earth is in motion. They're coming closer together. And what happens? They become a Venn diagram, all right? No, they they start to cross over into one another. Time is coming together. And in the person of Jesus, heaven and earth is overlapping. And so last week what we said is that so many churches are obsessed with getting people across the line into heaven when Jesus showed up and he was obsessed with how to bring heaven to earth. And the conclusion that we came to last week was that we want to be a community that learns to practice resurrection. How do we bring about the kingdom of God, right? Joining God as he does his work of renewal. And so you can check the whole uh, sermon and everything um, on YouTube or on our podcast, but we very much so as a church want to be a part of it. And the way to be a part of it, we believe, is actually to follow Jesus, to get a really, um, maybe I'd say like a raw picture of who Jesus is, and the best way to do it is to just walk through one of the Gospels. Like, I'm going to be honest, I would never choose this passage that we're going to go through today. Like, I would, uh, this is a very skippable passage, and that's going to happen periodically, but the point is, is how do we get an accurate picture of who Jesus is? Is he still compelling in our time? And maybe that for you is like um, encouraging in the sense that maybe like going to church or being a part of a church is like, I don't, I don't really know about that right now, or I'm not really sure I want to do that. But one of the things that we actually get to do here is we get to say, hey, I'm not, I don't actually get to choose everything, but I just get to get a new or re- renewed picture of Jesus. Not the picture of Jesus that I had when my, what my parents told me when I was a kid or that I studied in college, but uh, a picture that's sort of raw in this way. And the, the one thing that's really important here is when we come to the Bible, it's, it's actually quite easy to just make it about ourselves, right? We come to the Bible and we're like, all right, what, is, what does God have to teach me? And I think that God does want to meet us in these teaching times and when we open um, his word. But I think we would disregard a passage like this today because we'd say, you know, it's just not really adding value to me. Like, I don't really get it or it seems a little bit far-fetched. But the reminder that we need is that the Bible is very much for you, but it's not about you. All right, it's for you, but it's not about you. So it's a gift that we get to look at, and that's why we approach it and we say, whatever comes in the book of Mark is what comes, all right? And so here is what's taking place in our passage. And it, it might be good for you if you want to pull it up on your phone or if you brought a Bible by chance to follow along in uh, Mark chapter 5. I really do think that this would uh, be the best way because I'm going to rush through some parts, and then I'm going to slow down. I'm going to rush through some parts, and I'm going to slow down. So The last time we were in the book of Mark, we saw Jesus calming a storm. He's crossing the Sea of Galilee. Um, And this is significant because he's in this highly Jewish region called Capernaum. And he's moving away from Capernaum in verse 1. He's encountered a violent storm. Now he encounters a violent man, all right, in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And so 
what we know historically about Jesus is that uh, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He spends uh, pri- uh, the predominant amount of his time in the Gospels in Jewish regions, but he's actually moving out of that today. And the, it's, it gets quite complex, but um, in terms of the political, religious aspects of this, but it's complex just like it is today. And so there's different movements going on. Um, Jesus has a relationship with the Jewish people, the Gentile people, meaning just non-Jewish people. And then uh, Rome is intermixed in this. There's actually some Roman military language in our passage today, Rome being the super political military power of the day. And what you read in verse 1 is that Jesus is moving from this predominantly Jewish region, and then he's moving into Gentile territory. And so here's a map. So Capernaum is up uh, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and the Gerasenes is a region over on the right side, just for frame of reference. I think the Sea of Galilee um, is actually a lake. It's actually a lake. So fun fact, um, if you learn nothing else today, I don't know why they call it that. So Jesus lands in the Gerasenes, he steps off the boat, and immediately he is met by this demon-possessed man, or what's said is an unclean spirit. And this man's life sounds utterly dark. He's tormented by evil spirits. He's living amongst the dead in the cemetery or the tombs. And the locals apparently have no idea what to do with this man anymore. And so the locals have come, it, it, it looks as though they've tried to chain him up, And then he somehow has this superhuman strength, kind of like Marcellus probably, to like break out of these chains. And what does it say that he does? It says that he spends his days cutting himself and screaming. And so the picture you're getting is just absolutely dark and intense. Jesus steps off the boat. If I'm Jesus, I say, nope, wrong city. Like, I'm out of here, right? But Jesus sees him off in the distance running towards him and falling before him. And this is what it says. What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjourn you by God. Do not torment me. And so there's a little acknowledgement about who Jesus is, maybe the divinity of Jesus. Jesus says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asks him, what is your name? And the man starts speaking plural. One person starts speaking plural. Like if if, if you're around that, like I'm out, right? Where are my horror, horror movie people at? Like any of you in the room? Oh, gosh. Oh, like Christine is going to be up here praying for you guys at the end. Like she'll, she'll do it. The last horror movie I watched was The Conjuring in like 2014, 15, something like that. And at the end of the movie, I looked at my buddy and I was like, hey, would you, would you, would you sleep over tonight? Like I'm so, I'm so freaked out. But literally, this man says, we, we are legion for we are many. Legion is a, um, a Roman military phrase for maybe, maybe 6,000 soldiers. And so this man is possessed, like multiple demons. Like we don't really know if it's like a metaphor or what he's trying to say here. But he says, please don't make us leave. And they look over and they're like, what about the pigs? What about the pigs? Right? There's 2,000 of, of them over there. Send us to the pigs. And so Jesus agrees, and it's like, then like scholars go crazy trying to figure out what this exactly means, but the pigs rush down the steep bank, and they drown in the sea. And what do the townspeople do? The townspeople are like, it says they were afraid, makes sense, but they're like, you need to leave. You have to leave this region. We do not want any trouble like this. And then the man comes back to Jesus because he's actually been healed. He, he's actually whole again. And he says, Jesus, can I be with you? 
And Jesus has been building up this following and telling people, come and be with me. But to this man, he doesn't. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I don't know about you, but I, I, like, I feel the weight of this story and I'm like, I need a nap. Like, this is, there's just so much going on in the passage. So what do we learn about the passage? Like why, why is actually Mark even spending the time to say that Jesus left this Jewish region to go to, to this Gentile territory to display his divinity? Why do that? And it took me forever to figure this out in the passage, but I think the passage is about grace. I think the passage is about grace, undeserved favor. Jesus doesn't have to do this, right? He, we could rush Jesus to the cross like we just did Holy Week. We could actually just skip all of these things and just say, Jesus, thank you so much for dying, to, dying for me and get no context about what he wanted to do while he's on earth. But he doesn't do that because he wants to display his grace and give us a picture of it. So what is grace? Grace is unconditional love to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Unconditional love to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. That's why you and I are here today. And I know that because that's why I'm here today, because I am desperate for unconditional love because I am an undeserving person, right? Like, if you think about it, what is the deepest desire that you have as a person? Is to have a few friends, to go to work, to feel like your life is filled with meaning and purpose, that there's a sense of enchantment in our world, that like things actually matter, right? And for me, when I think about like my own deepest desire is just to be like, sometimes I say, I just want to be understood, right? To be known, to be fully comprehended, and at the same time, even in the midst of my limitations, to be loved. And I think if we just scratched beneath the surface, like if you had coffee with a friend this week and you were able to just like get a little bit deeper, you would be able to say, you know what, I'm remarkably fickle and insecure. That's the truth. Like that's the truth. If you, if you were just to sit down with a friend and, and you'd be able to say, like, I, I, I don't know about me so much. And I think the question ultimately that we're really asking, especially when we um, enter into relationships with other people, is like, can this person love me just for me? Like, could this person just love me for who I am? And I find that so astounding that Jesus shows up in the presence of a Gentile territory, and he just has the ability to display this type of grace. And so I just want to talk about, um, I want to talk about this idea of grace um, for the rest of our time, just three ways that um, grace shows up in this passage. And the first one is this, grace can meet anyone, anywhere, at any time. Grace can meet anyone, anywhere, at any time. And so, don't forget, um, when you read the passage, the man is tormented, dangerous. In fact, it's almost as if you read it, um, you, you get stuck with questions about pigs and demons, and you forget that this is a person, right? This is a man. This is someone that is created with purpose and dignity in the image of God. This person has value and is loved. Uh, this person, this man had a story about how he grew up as a child. This man had a story about how he got to the graveyard. But it's so easy to get distracted um, by the details of the story. Uh, in verse 3, it says, he lived among the tombs. Just to give you a picture, he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he often had been bound with shackles and change, in chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. 
No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself. Like, just pause and imagine this. Like, this is a person that's been chained out in a cemetery. Like, this is heartbreaking. And the language that's actually used here uh, by the writer is, is used to display a sort of animalistic, um, uh, in, in animalistic terms, someone who's clearly been alienated. I sort of imagine the townspeople like, we tried. Like, we tried with the man. Like, we came along to help him, and we thought, we thought we could help him. We brought him into our house, but it wasn't a good thing. We had to chain him up. In both of these encounters, this week and next week, one of the things, one of the themes that's really uh, sort of constant in there is that Jesus is actually breaking a lot of cleanliness laws. In the Old Testament, and particularly in Leviticus, you're getting a lot of uh, laws about what's clean and what's unclean, um, and basically what the Jewish people were saying, hey, we're actually going to be a people set apart, and so we're not going to participate in those things because those things would make us unclean, and I don't want to be a part of that, and so we're going to be set apart from anything that's unholy or unclean. And so that was sort of the task. And Jesus is coming through in this passage, and he's just in a Gentile territory, just completely breaking all of these rules. People that were tormented by evil spirits, that would have been considered unclean. People that came into contact with, de- with the dead or dead corpses would have been considered unclean. The man cutting himself, possibly bleeding, Jesus being around that would be considered unclean. And so this man has been totally shunned by society alienated, and the word that I really thought about this week was dehumanized. Dehumanized. Um, I, uh, back in 2012, I, I had this amazing opportunity to travel to Poland. Um, the last church that I worked at, we had a partnership with an organization that ran uh, summer camps and uh, planted churches all over Poland, and we became really good friends with them, and I've actually been to Poland three times now. But one of the things they did at the end of each of our trips was take us to um, Auschwitz and, and Birkenau, one of the deadliest concentration camps in uh, German-occupied Poland in World War II. It's actually estimated that 1.1 million people were killed at Auschwitz. Um, and just for frame of reference, that's, that's two-thirds of Manhattan, like, obliterated, right? And the Nazi Germany actually had a phrase for this level of dehumanization. The phrase is Untermensch, and it's a person considered, um, I think there's a slide here, Brie, um, a person considered racially or socially inferior. And um, when the, the, the word sort of translates like subhuman, but they don't mean it like in a metaphorical way, they mean it in an actual way, that um, the Jewish people are actually less than human. I, and I, I, was, I was actually thumbing through pictures this week of, of being there, and I did take a few pictures, but then I was like, it's, it's not helpful. It's too much. It's just a place of pure evil. I walked around there on a cold winter day, and I was like, I'm really glad that it's not summer because I get to feel how terrible this place truly is. And I was like, why don't, why don't they just destroy this place? But then I learned um, why it's such a powerful memorial to the atrocities um, and hatred of other people. The ways that um, the Nazis would dehumanize the Jewish people um, is actually really, really profound, this process. Taken from your home. Like, think about your home. Like, that's an extension of, of who you are as a person, an extension of your identity. Taken from your home. 
loaded onto a train that could last for up to 10 days, where the train car would be so packed in that you couldn't even sit down. There would be feces everywhere. The train would smell awful. They would take your clothes and your luggage from you. Actually, when we were there, there was rooms just full of people's luggage in one room, just piled up as high as the ceiling, where people just came in and dropped their luggage. And then they would be given the same striped outfit as a way of taking away more of their identity. They would be put in a bunk, and these bunks um, would be stacked three people high, and it would be like a sort of, um, maybe you've even seen pictures of this, but it's like a a less than a twin-size bed where three people were supposed to stay and to share a blanket. Food was, you know, watered-down soup, small pieces of bread. You'd get a tattoo. And you just think about the, the, the taking away of someone's identity as a way of, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, a way of not feeling guilty for the harm that you're inflicting on someone else. Dehumanization, right? And we could give you so many examples of this. Think about the transatlantic slave trade, chattel slavery, the three-fifths compromise. Like These are all ways to be thinking about this idea of dehumanization. And when you read this passage, you sort of... Um, start to feel the weight of the atrocities that have been experienced by, um, throughout the centuries. And I think one of the dangers in reading this passage is not acknowledging the fact that we do this in small ways. I know like Auschwitz, you're like, I, you know, like, no, I'm going to distance myself obviously from that, but what in, in what ways do we dehumanize people around us? Like when you look at the passage, this man steps off And Jesus responds to him, right? Like in the passage, he's touching people, he's speaking to people, he's making uh, unclean things clean by his very presence. And when I look at the passage, all I can think is, what do we need to learn from Jesus? What do we need to learn from Jesus about interacting with people, seeing other people in their humanity? All week I was thinking about, and of course, I I think we need to be careful with the the parallels of somebody that's demon-possessed, but... What are the parallels um, between the ways we see our homeless brothers and sisters in the city with a lack of humanity? Um, I was looking at an article, and I will post it on our, our Instagram, um, an article um, by the Bowery Mission that's really helpful in how we engage in real and practical ways with our homeless brothers and sisters um, in the city. But the point being is that grace, specifically in the person of Jesus, can meet anyone, anywhere, at any time. But we also need to acknowledge that grace can be bad for the economy. And this is like, I know we get stuck on who's with me, like, what about the pigs, Russell? What about the pigs? Are we going to answer this? Like, I think one of the things that Mark is actually trying to do with his language is he's trying to say the pigs don't matter. And I'll show you why here, verse 14. It says, the herdsmen, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country what had happened. And people came to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. The one who had the legion sitting there, he was clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had been described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. 2,000 pigs represented um, enormous livelihood, right? This is a massive economic loss for the herdsmen. And so no wonder the people come and say, "We we don't want that, but we also don't want you to uh, destroy the economy of our neighborhood, right? And so the herdsmen and the people, they saw one person healed and 2,000 pigs destroyed and all they could see was bad business. Jesus 
saw the rescue and restoration of one person, and he saw it as a greater gain than the capital assets. In other words, grace was bad for the economy. I really appreciate verse 16. It's the, they saw the man healed. They were afraid. Later, it says when he goes back, it says that they marveled. And this is a, this is a very common theme uh, that the author tries to get across is, oh, how do people respond to Jesus after he heals? Sometimes it says they had faith. Here it just says they were afraid and they wanted him to leave. Like, what if the most important place for a follower of Jesus is not in safety and comfort, detached from the suffering of other people, but actually in the midst of all of it? Grace can be bad for our economic output, and that could be, like, found in a very real way. Like, maybe if you take this personally for a second, maybe, um, maybe you'd say, like, I'm actually okay with having, like, a little bit of evil in my life than rescuing grace. Like, in, in our subtle way, we'd say, please leave, because right now, this thing actually gives me a level of comfort and safety, and it's known, and I don't, I don't really want you to be speaking into that. Like, the thing I was thinking about, really, like, in a real practical sense is, like, our taxes, right? Like, that's, like, that's bad. It's bad for business to cheat on, um, to not cheat on your taxes. It's hard. But what Jesus is saying is that eventually, if you're really going to follow me, it's going to start to cost you something. Grace is free, but as you realize you're changed, grace can be bad for the economy. Or what about uh, the herdsmen or the, the town people? What, what, what the passage is really trying to say, actually, is that loving your neighbor, it actually should cost you something, time, money. If you're really going to do that in a genuine way, it's going to cost. Uh, Ron Sider is an author. He writes a book called um, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. He says, God's word teaches a very hard and disturbing truth. Those who neglect the poor and the oppressed are really not God's people at all. No matter how frequently they practice their religious rituals, nor how orthodox are their creeds and confession. And so I'll just leave you with a question from this section. What level of inconvenience are you willing to subject yourself to for other people to find healing? What level of inconvenience are you willing to subject yourself to for other people to find healing? Are you and I willing to sacrifice money, literally, time, whatever it may be, to see our neighbors healed. And so grace can be bad for the economy. And I'm sure there was like an inflation joke in there. I just didn't have it in me today. So the last thing, grace is to be shared. Grace is to be shared. Verse 18 says this. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Be with him is the language of discipleship following after Jesus, come underneath me as a disciple. And Jesus has been like all about this, be with me as a disciple. And he did not permit him. But he said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I love this. Like, this man's life is completely changed around. He's had an encounter with Jesus. He's, he's simply, the easiest way to say it is he's, he's a new man. He's not the same man. And Jesus says, I have something better for you. Like, I have something better than coming with me. I actually want you to go back and tell the story of what's been done to you. Tell the story of grace. Tell the story of rescue. Tell the story of deliverance from evil. Tell the story. And this is what we're supposed to do with this good news, too. 
Um, last week, um, maybe it was two weeks ago, I was really captivated by a story in the New Yorker um, by a, a man by the name of Francis Collins. Does anybody know who Francis Collins is? I don't know. Okay, a few of you. Um, sadly, he's sort of famously known as Dr. Fauci's boss, uh, but this is Francis Collins. And um, Francis Collins has actually been the director of the National Health Institute since 2009, and he's the longest-serving National Health Institute director um, because usually when there's a transition of presidents, we get a new one. But somehow, um, um, Francis Collins has worked under Obama, Trump, and Biden, and he is an acclaimed geneticist. He actually oversaw a project called the National Human Genome Research Project, and basically they mapped the genome of species. Um, I don't know what, what actually that even means or what that even looks like, um, but you probably don't either, so don't judge me. Um, but when he, when he completed it, um, it said, uh, he called it a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion for worship because he's actually a follower uh, of Jesus. And one of the things um, in the article in the New Yorker, you've got to go read this whole article. It's, um, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, his role through the pandemic has been communicating both to the public and the political sectors about um, vaccines and viruses and, and um, how to really get the message across in a way um, that isn't um, political in any sense. Uh, but in the article, the things uh, that really struck me was that he was getting a lot of pushback um, for his faith in the midst of um, his time at the NIH. And um, he, um, he was arguing with some of his colleagues about science and religion and should they overlap, should they not overlap. And basically one of the scientists came to him and said, hey, we shouldn't um, actually claim any moral absolutes because if we do that, it can taint our science. And um, he was able to push back. And I just want to read this. this is, there's no slide for this, but um, he was actually in a debate with um, an atheist uh, named Christopher Hitchens. And he, he said this, uh, the article says this, he argued that science and religion couldn't coexist, um, Christopher Hitchens. But after the events, Hitchens and Collins kept talking. They could, we could be completely at opposite ends when it came to harmony of science and faith, but then we could also have a meaningful conversation about other life matters without bringing too much baggage into it, Collins told The Atlantic. After Hitchens was diagnosed with terminal cancer, Collins offered to help visiting Hitchens in his home and getting to know his family. They spoke about genomics, faith, and history. Sometimes Collins played the piano for him. Before he died, Hitchens called Collins one of the greatest living Americans. I was just like, dude gets it. Like he's, he's, he's an excellent scientist. He wants to be the best in his field, and yet he didn't take the humanity out of the process. And he shared his faith in a very tangible and action-oriented way. And when grace touches you like that, like when, when you encounter Jesus and it really resonates in your soul and grace changes who you are, the thing that just so naturally happens to you is it just comes out of you, right? Go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And I love this story because it was such a tangible way for him to show up in somebody else's home and to play the piano. And his friend called him one of the greatest living Americans. And so, despite thinking uh, of this passage as something um, that you couldn't relate to, that there was nothing in for you, I hope that you see a measure of grace. So let me leave you with two questions today. Where do you need God to meet you? Where do you need God to meet you? I know it's natural 
um, to distance yourself from this story, but I know that actually we come in here and we feel that, right? We feel alienated. We feel pushed away. How does God want to meet you in that? Is there something missing in your life that God wants to restore in you or give to you? And then the second question, where is God asking you to meet others? And maybe today, that's what you were thinking about this whole time. You're thinking about a friend. You, you, you were thinking about somebody that lives on your street, somebody that lives in your building, a coworker that's going through a hard time. And maybe today, just in a really small way, would be the ability to make some space for them in your life so that you could be a person that displays this type of grace when it deeply resonates in you. And so let's embody this today and let's practice it together. If you want to grab the communion cups that are on your seat. Each week, uh, we take this um, here at Reunion as a, as a way of um, reminding ourselves of this good news, this gospel message. And the, the bread just represents Jesus' body broken for us, and uh, the cup of juice symbolizes Jesus' blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So I want to read this passage from Romans, um, and maybe you just close your eyes as I read this today. And then I'll pray for our communion, and then I'll lead us through this. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus, as we come um, to this table again, week after week, to be reminded this meal of remembrance, reminds us of um, both the action that you've done for us on the cross, but it also reminds us of our own brokenness and our own limitations. And so we come and we acknowledge our desperate need for grace through this meal. And so, God, I pray that this would be a reminder of your grace and a sustaining way of being in your presence. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.